We're back, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where we talk about current movies uh, that just came out. So we took a bit of a break through June, and uh, now we're back for July. July's a big movie month, so we got a lot of movies to talk about in July coming up in future episodes. But June was also a big movie month. So we thought that before we get into July, let's just sort of wrap up everything that happened in June and uh, talk about it at maybe talk about a little more, a few more movies at a little bit less length than usual. So today we're going to go through uh, all the movies we saw in June and we've picked out a few specific movies to talk, talk about in a little more depth. And I will leave those for you to discover, but we, we don't make a secret of it. It's going to be pretty clear what we're talking about pretty quickly. listening to another episode of classic movies live the pre-recorded show where we talk about movies today we're going to talk about a lot of movies because it's been a while we took a quick break um our last episode was at the very end of june i believe and we're or no no not the very end the very beginning of june might have been the very end of may and we're now at the very beginning of july uh so we missed june um, but Pierre, how was your June? How you doing, Pierre? It was it was pretty good. I mean, lots of lots and lots of movies to watch in June. I, I feel like I've never had a month like this where there's just like I can't believe Spider Verse was like five weeks ago because um, I feels like so many other movies have come out. And the truth is, a lot of movies have come out in between. I want to say, I mean, between the t- two of us, I mean, I've seen like at least seven new movies in the past like five weeks and i think you were at like what 10 right uh one two three four five six seven eight it it might be 10 if i'm missing if i'm like if i just forgot to which could happen it was a big move it was a big movie month yeah this is actually the first month maybe in my life that i've missed a pixar movie potentially in theaters but definitely like opening week usually i'm there opening week and i actually still have not seen the new pixar movie which we may talk about later yeah and I mean, it's I not showing any much, but... 
it's not showing any signs of slowing down because what last, I mean, I think we had a week of kind of a break and then next week we have, no, last week was Indiana Jones. This week, I don't think any huge movies are coming out, but then we have Mission Impossible and then we have uh, Barbie slash Oppenheimer. Um, I want to say there's another movie coming out. And then the Captain Marvel used to come out at the end of July, but it got moved. But I can't imagine um, any of those movies doing well if, if the Marvel was packed in July as well, because it is a very crowded month already. Yeah, I was going to say there might be, there's, I'm sure there's something the week after Barbie and Oppenheimer, but like Barbie and Oppenheimer has, uh, those two have dominated film discourse on every website (laughs) that I go to so hard that frankly, I don't even know what other movies are coming out this year. I just was reminded earlier today that Dune is coming out this year and that's not even till like Mm. November. Yeah, it's actually quite an impressive marketing strategy for both of them i think they're both gonna prosper a lot um it's even kind of weird i saw mission they mentioned out like tom cruise because you know open like the barbie people did like oh we have tickets to Oppenheimer, and then tom cruise is also like oh i have tickets to Oppenheimer, but his movie's opening like a week earlier <laughs> but it feels like he's like trying to jump on the on the like hey guys i'm part of this too type of thing I... but the truth is he's not he's not really but i guess he kind of is too i don't know I might be misremembering, but I'm pretty sure that I saw a picture of Tom Cruise with tickets to both. Like, he was doing a double feature. Oh, okay. Well, there you go, yeah. Um, meanwhile, I don't think Christopher Nolan will be participating in anything like this because he, I feel like he's the type of guy that once the movie's done, he just kind of, like... He's not, he's not really concerned about any other movies coming out around the same time, if that he makes sense. He kind of feels he's, like the... He feels like the kind of guy where someone would interview him about movies coming out and someone would be like, so, you gotta tell me, what are your thoughts on this Barbie-Oppenheimer conflict? And he'd be like, what's Barbie? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> or I'd be like, I, I feel like he'd just say like, the, oh, like, I'm sure it's a good movie. And that's a, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. seem like someone that really buys into this, like, I want to say memeable press, press, uh, output if that makes sense so mm-hmm. yeah, he's above all that it's christopher nolan of course which ironically might be the reason that he's quite uh, that he's as memeable as he is <clears throat> that makes sense i feel like you can't really be a meme if you start embracing the meme it's kind of a morbius situation yeah so he's uh Speaking he's doing a morbius, good job of that are you craven the hunt are we going to talk about craven the hunter this year I hope not. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> that trailer looked horrendous. It's like they saw the Morbius trailer and they were like, we're going to double down on how bad we can make the trailer. And they took everything bad about the Morbius trailer and just really, really went for it. I don't know how they make their... It, it's like they make their movies look so bland, Sony. And it's it's like this is 2023... I feel like trailer marketing has come so far, but you're marketing exactly like a movie would have been marketed in like 2008. It's like they never got past Spider-Man 3's marketing. They were like, this Mm -hmm. is the peak. We can't get past (laughs) this. It's just like, okay, well, (laughs) good luck. I don't know. So that'll that'll definitely be interesting. Um, Yeah, interesting is one word for it. We'll see. Mm -hmm. So, uh, um, 
you want to what what all did you end up seeing in June? So I've seen I've seen Spider-Verse and then I didn't watch Transformers. I'm going to watch it tomorrow. And then I saw The Flash. Um and then I saw Indiana Jones. I saw Elemental yesterday. I saw Asteroid City two days ago. And I want to say there's one more movie I'm missing. I need to look at the list I sent you. Uh, you may not have sent me a list. Oh, I didn't send you a list. Okay. <laughs> I just need to look through the movies you watch because I feel like you watch everything I watch, basically. Yeah, I think that's oh. it. So I watched six movies, I guess. Dude, Transformers is so fun. I... Like I watched that with uh, one of my when when one of my buddies was in town and like it's not a good movie but it's so fun and there's like so many silly lines in it it's uh, it's got Pete Davidson in it again uh, man I I loved it I loved it so much and I'm excited to hear you th- I'm I'm excited to like hear your thoughts on it there was a um, friend of the show but. Never has been a guest on the show. Uh, Simon Best from the Awesome Friday podcast wrote a review of it that I think was like a rave review, except I'm pretty sure it was also scathing, which is really weird. Like, it's very clear from his review that this is not a good movie, but also it's the full, like, real embodiment of a person just bashing action figures together, which is exactly what that movie is. So like, I don't know. I loved it. I'm excited. I mean, it can't be worse than a lot of the other movies I've seen this summer. I feel like June really lowered my expectations. (laughs) So any blockbuster that derives any enjoyment from me might actually be quite a good experience, which might be Um, foreshadowing to a, the next two reviews I'm going to be the next two oh, movies no. I'm going to be talking about, but we'll see. So uh, let's see. So, so this year, so for this, this June, I actually thought I saw way more movies than I did. Uh, but I, I saw more movies than you. So um, I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> I saw just the other day. I saw actually just yesterday after I, brought it up to you i was like i should see asteroid city again so i went and watched asteroid city so i've seen that twice in june now um the day before that i saw no hard feelings which i was very hyped on that one was a big surprise um and then also i've seen i saw transformers i saw past lives and i also saw the flash and indiana jones um Mm. and then on like disney released uh, Netflix released an animated movie called Nimona that I just watched, which is pretty good. And Disney released a documentary on Stan Lee called Stan Lee, which is a little bit funny because it has it's mostly just Stan Lee in his own words. And some of the things that he describes as being like cool, important things about himself are so revealingly bad that I'm like, oh, damn, you actually let him say this and put it on and put it in a movie that's that's bold like he talks about at one point he talks about creating spider-man and he's like steve ditko always complained to me that i took too much credit for spider-man but the way that i saw it i did invent spider-man 
I had the idea for a guy that climbs on walls. That's inventing Spider-Man. Steve Ditko may have done the art and the story and everything, but I invented Spider-Man. And I'm like, oh man, you're telling on yourself, dude. Yeah, I I feel like Stan Lee, he's kind of a... I, I feel like Marvel props him up as being like a visionary like creator, but in reality, he's just a guy who was mostly making just comic books with other people. And he took a lot of the credit. It sounds like it's like, it's not like he's, it's not like he deserves no credit because he's incredibly important to the comic book industry and also very important to the characters. But like, he takes a lot more credit than he actually deserves at a lot of people's expenses. Yeah, it's a little. You you think you think you get a little more humble when you're 90 years old, and there's really no. You've kind of peaked in your fame, and there's really no point in making sure that people still think you are the sole creator of Spider-Man. But oh, hey, dude, you don't get humble when people. You don't get humble when people give you a million dollars for calling them true believers. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Wait, what is that? It's not a real thing, right? I, I don't know, man. He just would like he he had so many speaking engagements, and he was actually such a fun person to listen to. Like, yeah. Um, and he was rich. Like, he did excellently for himself. And like I said, he did a lot for comics. But like, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I am qualified or educated enough to talk about Stan Lee. And if I was, that would be the entire focus of an episode. I think. That's fair. He has he has quite a legacy. I I don't I don't want it to seem that um, I do not respect his legacy too. He, he has he has a very big legacy, and he he has done a lot for the comic book industry. I just yeah, it can be blown out of proportion sometimes. Not even always by himself. I think there's a lot of factors there. But anyways, <clears throat> actually speaking of people with big legacies, we've talked about him a little bit on this show before. Um, actually a few times, but, uh, Steven Spielberg is someone I would say also has a very big legacy. Shockingly, I don't think he has any movies coming out this year, but he did executive produce one of them that I'm pretty sure we both saw in June, if I'm not misremembering. So, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? The Dial of Destiny. Can I just say he's an executive producer, but he was also an executive producer on the Transformers series <laughs> with Michael Bay. So I think that's the the extent of his potential impact on this movie, which is to say I doubt there was much. I think he actually had he was involved in pre-production though, and I think he was lined up to possibly direct the movie until he probably realized there wasn't really anything good to direct i feel like he's at the stage of his life where he's gonna try to be very picky with what he's doing possibly but i don't think i would agree with that because in terms of just the story of this movie i think that this is something that steven spielberg really could direct and could have done pretty excellently with but uh I'll let you. I'll let you summarize yeah. very briefly the Dial of Destiny before we get into it. So the Dial of Destiny is a the fifth Indiana Jones movie, uh, starring Harrison Ford, who um, is not, you know, in the the prime of his life, and he is 
I, he's dealing with marriage issues and stuff, and somehow this leads to his goddaughter, who we are just introduced to in this movie, taking him on a quest, whether he likes it or not, to find the other part of the Dial of Destiny, which drove her father insane. And that's basically what it comes down to. And there's and there's what does the Dial of Destiny do? Them. The Dial of Destiny is a time machine or something. That's <laughs> yeah, it's it's a time machine. And the guy, the Nazis, are trying to go back to the past to fix Hitler's mistakes. Essentially, and Indiana Jones must stop them, lest they fix Hitler's mistakes. <laughs> So I, I want to point out, this is a spoiler. So I'll warn people right here. This is a spoiler. I don't think it's that much of a spoiler because I'm not going to go into too deep of plot details, but this is a spoiler. Skip ahead by like a few minutes if you want to avoid it. The Nazis want to go back in time to kill Hitler, which I think is a very interesting twist. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was a twist that I think could have come earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. I think they're... They just seem very generic until that point. And at that point of the movie, I thought it got a lot more interesting when uh, I would say the third act truly kicks in and we see some really crazy stuff, which is, I think, par for the course for an Indiana Jones movie. Uh, I just really wish that the first two legs of the movie were anywhere close to as interesting or creative as that last part of the movie because the... I, I I think the first it just it felt like the movie was playing it very very safe, and the third act I think could be seen by some people as kind of too stupid to have in the movie, but for me it was the only part that felt like they were trying something different and they were doing something interesting with the movie and. It was like for 15 minutes, I, I genuinely like really enjoyed the movie. And the rest of it is very, very boring to me. And unfortunately, this is a two and a half hour long movie. So that's a very big fraction of the movie that I did not enjoy. I think like the third act to me is the most Indiana Jones part of this movie. I think that like, I think this movie has all the classic hallmarks of an Indiana Jones movie, but without a lot of the... A, uh, without a lot of the like excitement and childlike wonder that Sp- that Steven Spielberg brings to it, because like in the first Indiana Jones movies, it's been a while since I've seen them, admittedly. But in like one, two, three, and even Chris- Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, a little bit, like uh, Steven Spielberg is clearly so excited about this adventure he gets to tell you about, and he's like trying to make it as he's trying to make you as excited about this adventure as he- as he possibly can. And the way I explained it to to my mom is like my favorite James Mangold movie is Logan, which is about a guy fighting with like the horrors of old age. And uh, it's really good. But like Indiana Jones is about childlike excitement and fun adventures. And it seems like this movie wants to be, it feels like this movie, this movie has a lot of Indiana Jones personal drama, which has a place in this universe, it's not like Indiana Jones isn't a person as well, but it feels like more dour and boring than 
an Indiana Jones movie should be. Like how even the even during the action scenes, it's like the action isn't the action feels like it's not being like it's not the part the director's excited about. It feels like the possible reconciling with his wife is what the director is excited about, which is cool, but it's not what I'm excited about in the, in Indiana Jones. I mean, there's just a lot of issues from the concept itself. I think, like you said, James Mangold, I feel like with Logan, he tried to make Logan the movie as unfun as possible. Basically. Yeah. That's what, that was one of my issues with the movie is that there was any moment that had any possible levity was like, like stifled out very very quickly after like for example the farmhouse scene with the family i actually hate that scene because it's the only sort of enjoyable part of the movie that gets completely ruined because that whole family dies like very exclu- excruciatingly violent deaths you know mm-hmm. and i thought that was just kind of a it, it didn't feel like it felt like kind of a plea for oh we, this is a depressing movie you know so we're gonna make like, no one can have fun in this movie, essentially. I, I could see why Disney would hire him because, you know, he was working with an older action star. Um, Harrison Ford is quite old now. And so there is a correlation there. But yeah, now now that I've seen the movie, there is a there is part of it's part of it that really feels like it's struggling between being this kind of dour send off for Indiana Jones and another lighthearted adventure for the family. Uh, I think the the reveal that his son died due to enlistment was very, very unnecessary for the movie and mm-hmm. really added nothing. And it did not feel very Indiana Jones to me. You know, like it, it felt, it just felt extremely unnecessary because you're, then you're turning this fun adventure into like the, a fun, a possibly fun adventure. Like I thought it would be, you know, like, oh, he finally, like his son, his son's graduated and his son's gone doing his own thing. Maybe his wife's gone with his son and he's just kind of alone for like a week. And I was thinking like, oh, his goddaughter shows up and he has kind of one final adventure, you know. Mm -hmm. But what we get is this guy who gets tricked by his goddaughter into going on this adventure because his godfather is actually, goddaughter is actually a dick. And I guess kind of similar to him, which I, I, I see the appeal of for why they wrote Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character like that. But she's she's a very mean person. Um, he does not want to go on this adventure at all. He's kind of forced to. And they don't really bond at all. There's no There's no family bonding in any way. And there's no fun, which I think Spielberg is very, very good at bringing that to the table. Like we've seen... You know, we've seen in even Temple of Doom, like Temple of Doom, Last Crusade, and uh, Crystal Skull, I'd say are all movies with great ensembles around Indiana Jones mm-hmm. with great chemistry that really help propel the adventure forward, you know? And we just got none of that. I felt I felt very little chemistry between Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Harrison Ford. Her character just did not work for me. And then they added the short, the discount short round character... <laughs> who also felt like like a very sad attempt at bringing in some kind of diversity to the movie if that makes sense and they just none of them got along it just felt very drawn out and boring and it's it's so weird to me because i feel like there was a very obvious foundation there where he 
you know, he wants these people, he bonds with his goddaughter who he finds out is very similar to him as, at a young age. And he kind of acts as her mentor. But we, what we kind of got is this weird thing where they're kind of fighting all the time and they sort of had different goals. And then they just kind of start working together for no reason. And there's a huge ensemble around them that isn't even used. Antonio Banderas is in this movie and like you barely notice him. Yeah. He's got a big he, I mean, role he's, too. He's an example of a, a character that ideally in an event Indiana Jones movie would bring a lot of life to the to the group and he did mm-hmm. he, antonio banderas was great for the two minutes he was in the movie yeah and then, exactly and then he's gone you know and he's not even just gone he he's straight up like murdered for no reason oh yeah like like what like why is this this doesn't seem that this doesn't seem very fun i don't know so like i um i don't remember this movie very well because i haven't seen it since it came out kingdom of the crystal skull is one of the movies that I have seen the most times in theaters. I saw it seven times in theaters, not because I kept wanting to go back necessarily, but because it just worked out that way. I made plans with like seven different groups of friends and family to go and see it. And they never ended up lining up. So it was like, I just kept going back to it for like a full week. And um, so I've seen it a lot and I do remember enjoying it at least a little bit, but like I looked I rewatched the final scene recently and the final scene is such a nice, hopeful and like fun send off to Indiana Jones that it's weird to me that there even is a fifth movie, let alone this movie that like, isn't that's like also a send off to Indiana Jones, but isn't like fun about it. Like there's a scene in the movie that I won't talk too much about the context of it, but Indiana Jones is just like, I'm going to stay here. Just let me die. I'm going to, I'm just going to die here. It's like, why? That's not Indiana Jones. Like he's, he can be a serious guy, but like Indiana Jones is never, I, I have never had the impression that Indiana Jones is the kind of guy who goes to a weird place and is like, you know what? I want to just die here. This would be, this would be a good place to die. Yeah, well, I that that's they were bringing such a weird quality to it, like, especially after we were rewatching the first. I've I've rewatched the first two recently, and there's just this really like I love how there's no continuity between the movies. Really, like they might sort of reference like some some things between the movies at times, but this felt like for the first time they were picking up they were picking up a lot of elements from four in terms of, you know, his son and him being married and stuff and mm-hmm. throwing that all out the window. And that actually, like, really taints, like, 4, too. Because they're just, like, the whole point of 4 was, and I think what made it such a good send-off, even though I don't think, I don't think it's the best Indiana Jones movie, but I think it's a pretty solid movie in its own right and a good send-off for the character. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they continue the threads from 4 and then retroactively in some ways ruined for because they were picking up those plot points, right? When they really should like five should be able to stand by itself. They shouldn't have taken all these elements to make a, a dour last act, if that makes sense. Because like the, the first three, like you could watch any of them in any order. And it would probably be just as enjoyable. Um, I think I might've actually seen temple of doom before I saw the other ones. I don't yeah. remember for sure because Temple of Doom and Raiders of the Lost Ark are so different that, like, Mm -hmm. 
I actually don't remember what order I watched them in because I remember like, I definitely at one point watched Temple of Doom after I'd watched Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think I've seen that movie probably the most of the series outside of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull that I saw seven times. Uh, yeah. But like, I remember like watching it and pausing it halfway through and being like, is this, wait a minute, is this Indiana Jones? Like, what does this have? Is this before the first one? Does this have anything to do yeah. with the first one? And the answer is it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's also a quality I missed where when you bring in continuity, then you're just bringing the weight of the other movies to it. And that, I don't think that was really necessary. You know, the most I really care, like even, even for like bringing back Marion, I thought that was just like, I thought it worked because it was the send off for the series. And Marion was like the only girl I feel like he ever actually had feelings for she, uh, in the three of them. in the third one? I can't remember. No, she, she wasn't. Was. Okay. Um, I think she was, she might have, they were, she was, they were thinking of having her as a cameo or something, but she didn't. I think Marion's been mentioned, like in Maybe. ones that she wasn't in. Yeah. <clears throat> but I, you know, I like, that's why I liked four is that they use the continuity in a good way to end the series. And in this case, they were, they were like, we need one more adventure, so we're going to ruin his life. <laughs> in in then, this one? To me, it almost felt like they used the continuity to get out of the continuity. Like, there's a scene where yeah. he's like, where he's like, my son is dead and my wife divorced me. And it's like, the <laughs> only reason you're bringing these things up is because by the end of four, you had a, you had a son and a wife. Therefore, yeah. you have to explain why you don't have those things because we yeah. live in sitcom world. Like, why, that's... Why? Why can't you yeah. just say they were gone for a week on vacation or something? Yeah. Like literally, or they could even be like, like, sh like I got obviously Shia LaBeouf can't be in this movie due to various allegations against him, <laughs> but you don't need him to be in the, like, you know, you don't need him to be in the movie to make it like, to make him not die. You know, if a character's not in the movie, everyone just doesn't assume like they're dead. Well, it's, it's and like, you could just say he's gone. I don't understand. And it didn't really add anything to the movie because it's not like the movie was about him relearning how to care for someone or anything. It was like a very generic Indiana Jones adventure. And then in the end, Marion comes back for some reason. We don't even know why. She just comes back. Yeah. And like, I mean, the movie has a time travel device, but it's not even... The, it's weird to me because this is a time travel movie that isn't where one of the themes is that's where like the theme of potentially fixing the past isn't really explored. And like, it doesn't have to be, it's just such a weird choice because that's usually the point of time travel is like, if you have the opportunity to go back in time, do you fix the past? And like, with with the reveals later on in the movie, that wouldn't be a possible thing they could have done. But mm -hmm. like at no point does it ever come up. Like Indiana Jones, what would you change if you could go back in time? And like he has an answer, but it's not an answer that would translate into a scene in a movie. He's like, mm -hmm. it's like, it's not something that they really explore. And the depths of it are a single conversation on a boat. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. I don't know. I, I Let's move on. I There's not really much more to say. I like the third. I thought the third act with the time travel was the only interest. Him, the guy, the Nazi shooting Roman soldiers, 
was maybe the peak of cinema to me. <laughs> but other than that, and I, I thought it was really sweet seeing him actually, you know, meet one of his idols, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a sweet scene. Other than that, I thought it was a very generic, boring movie. And I'm very happy. I feel bad for Harrison Ford because I feel like this series means a lot to him. But I'm pretty happy it's bombing. It's, it's, it's potentially the biggest bomb in history, which I never thought I'd hear an Indiana Jones movie becoming. So, Damn. Uh, do you yeah. want to talk about another big bomb or do you want to go on to <laughs> a more positive movie? Uh, let's do a little more positive movie. That we can get All right. Back. Let's talk about something a little more positive. This is a movie that I really liked. Uh, and like Indiana Jones, it is also the 11th movie in a series, that series being Wes Anderson's filmography. Asteroid City just came out a few weeks ago. And I remember when I saw this the first time, I immediately like uh, went on to Discord and was like, Pierre, you got to see this. I really like this. I think, and I've calmed down on this opinion a little bit since then, but I was like, I think this might be Wes Anderson's best. I've calmed down on that a bit. I don't know that I fully think that anymore, but mm. I really, really liked Asteroid City. Uh, Pierre, what, do, what did you think of Asteroid City before we talk? About I didn't it? like it. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. Dang it. It's okay. Uh, well, it's a little more positive, but that's what we're going to stop at. Just a little bit more positive. Woo. So yeah. um, uh, Asteroid City is a very meta movie it's it literally starts with brian cranston being like asteroid city does not exist asteroid city is a play by fictional playwright in the 50s and the way that the movie unfolds is it's a in universe it's this play about a junior stargazer convention in 1995 where um the in in a fictional place called asteroid city that's built around the crater of a like very tiny asteroid that uh over it's it's the events of that junior stargazer convention where they meet an alien and outside in the meantime we're also getting a framing device that's the making of this play uh asteroid city which includes all of the people from the movie from the actual like events of the movie that we're seeing as in-universe actors and as as well as a few extra people like Willem Dafoe as an acting teacher and uh, Edward Norton as a playwright and in maybe my favorite role in, well, my second favorite role in the movie, Adrian Brody as a stage director. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's start with you. Cause uh, you, you said you didn't like this movie much. What'd you, what'd you think? Uh, I I just thought it was I mean I don't know what I expected Wes Anderson's been doing this thing for a while but this felt like overly pretentious schlock that, uh, <laughs> that I had to wade through I don't know the uh, like the whole meta the whole meta staging just felt like it didn't really feel like it helped the story of Asteroid City in any way it it felt like every time the they started talking about the actors and like the story behind the play i just got really bored um it didn't really do anything for me i, th I thought some more re like a more of a reason for them to be doing it would have made sense which i think there was a reason because the climax of the movie actually happens not in asteroid city but you know in the play mm -hmm. or behind the scenes of the play because i think the this the actual story of the movie is behind the scenes of the play 
And Asteroid City just is actually more of just a filler between those scenes to get from each from each meta meta standpoint. And but it was just like to understand the movie, I would I would have to like read an article about it, explaining it or something. And I don't think a movie's that good if you have to read an article explaining the point of the movie, if that makes sense. Um, not not to say that I think. I'm, I'm frowning upon people that do do that and it adds meaning to them. That's just a personal thing because like there's, uh, cause other than that, the movie doesn't really have anything going for it. The, every character is Wes Andersonized and that is to say they all act the same. They're all deadpan. They're all soft spoken. Um, there's very little variance between their actual personalities in my opinion. And really all, all it comes down to it, it it's beautifully shot. <laughs> it's beautifully mm-hmm. shot. I adored the color palette of Asteroid City. And that's all I can really say. Um, I love the one scene with where Brian Cranston actually accidentally ends up being in Asteroid City. That was hilarious. I laughed very loud at that. And I wish there was more of that in the movie itself because I thought that was one of the moments that actually made sense of it actually gave me a reason for why uh there was a meta telling of the story and to me it was to make a joke (laughs) it was a good joke Mm -hmm. but other than that like all the humor was just generic wes anderson stuff and uh yeah that's all i can really say i'm sorry i just i i think I think he peaked with Grand Budapest. I actually think Grand Budapest is an amazing movie. And it felt the, like the only time he really um, had characters with like a real character arc. And the meta, the meta part of that, like the, the meta storytelling of that, of that didn't like, only help the movie. And yeah, you had characters that in my opinion acted quite differently, you know? Um, I, I think you know, the past three movies he's done, Isle of Dogs, French Dispatch, and this, have all been, like, he took everything that that made uh, Grand Budapest unique, and he only took that, and he made it all, all the rest of his movies, which is to say, like, he, he took the Wes Anderson parts, and he's not balancing it out with actual character, to me, like, actual watchable character growth. And different characters and stuff um but yeah that's that's just me you go ahead sorry that was a no it's i don't like wes anderson anymore (laughs) that's fair um i think like i so i guess first off uh i i with one exception i hated the child actors in this i think they're the most obviously pretentious part and that's my least favorite part of wes anderson movies are the pretentious bits uh Mm -hmm. because like he gets very into himself and I think he thinks it's very funny. And I think mm. it is very funny to him in a way that it is not funny to me. Uh, however, aside from that, I think that um, maybe this movie benefits a little bit from me, from the last Wes Anderson movie I saw having been the French dispatch, which I liked, but thought was generally a mess. 
because I thought it was kind of all over the place and it was Wes Anderson trying a bunch of things, most of which didn't work, but all of which were at their core kind of neat ideas. A lot of them visual, a lot of them like just anthology storytelling. But I think that this movie really crystallized a lot of what I thought were good ideas in French Dispatch and like made them work. Um, Specifically, the visuals of this movie were relatively consistent, which is one thing that I hated about French Dispatch. Uh, The play or like the staging of the play was all in black and white. And it was like, uh, it was all in black and white full screen and it all made sense. And like, until at the very end when that starts breaking a little bit, it sort of like kept you fully in that world. So you knew what was going on versus the asteroid city world, which was, you know, big matte paintings, all pastels, all very colorful and like everyone playing a character. So I thought that like the delineation was really, uh, really well done. And it especially ended up working near the end where the more meta elements do start sort of seeping between the two and the big climax of the movie happens again, outside of the, outside of the actual events. But I think like, What I really liked about this movie is I felt like it was Wes Anderson sort of grappling with his own filmmaking in a bit. Uh, So the first thing that I noticed is the part of this movie that is supposed to be Asteroid City, the play, is so, like, it's so abundantly artificial that, like, um, I... It's, it's more artificial than it should be if it's a staging of a play. Like, it's got matte paintings, it's got huge sets, it's got way more characters than it has any right to, and it has a bunch of scenes that don't directly advance the plot or obviously advance character arcs. Obviously, most of the scenes there are there for a purpose, but, like, there's a lot that kind of seem like random throwaway scenes, like the scene where Maya Hawk comes in and reprimands the cowboy for giving a cigarette to a little boy. Like that doesn't mean any, that, that's not an obviously important scene, but like it does, it does help. And it's a, it's a scene that you would definitely find in like a longer movie, but you might not find in a play where, you know, you don't have enough people on stage to make a scene like that worthwhile. Anyway, it's very cinematic and the part that's supposed to be the play is extremely cinematic to the point where it doesn't make sense that that would actually be a play. But the behind the scenes is all done like on a stage with mostly minimal actors and it feels like a play, which I think is kind of like a neat subversion where the part that's supposed to be real is uh, intensely artificial and the part that's supposed to be artificial is so artificial that it can only be like quote unquote movie real like it doesn't make sense that it would be a play that you can like watch on a stage so i think that was kind of like an interesting subversion and then the part that i like really like the biggest thing that i really liked is uh there's a main the main character of this whose name is i think his name is jones hall but like in universe, in, in the play, his name is Augie Steenbeck, and he's played by Jason Schwartzman. Uh, the reason I say the main character is Jones Hall is his actor in universe asks a question very early on, why does Augie burn his hand on the easy grill? And Because it's this random throwaway thing that happens much later in the play 
where he touches a grill and just out of nowhere and burns his hand on it. And it's a completely random thing that he just does. And later on in the play, he's in like a cast for the whole time, but there's no obvious reason for it. And it doesn't make sense with his character. And to me, that is the main, like the main interesting plot thread of the entire movie is Jones Hall trying to figure out why Augie burns his hand on this easy grill. Because to me, it's like, it's sort of wrestling with why do my characters act the way they do? And the answer being, they just kind of do, but there has to be some deeper meaning to it. And so to me, this whole meta narrative that Asteroid City builds up is not just, it's it's sort of wrestling with storytelling, but it's so Wes Anderson-y that it, to me, it feels like it's Wes Anderson sort of examining his own recent storytelling. Like, this isn't an examination or a deconstruction of Bottle Rocket. It's a deconstruction of what was I doing in the French Dispatch? Did it work? And if not, why? And him sort of like looking at all of these characters who are typical Wes Anderson characters and occasionally trying to like figure out what is going on in their heads and not having a good answer for it all the time. The three characters that I really, really like in this movie are Augie Steenbeck, for that reason I just described, uh, Tom Hanks, because as a friend of mine pointed out, he is the only character who's not a Wes Anderson character. He's just playing a sincere character in a way that is almost not present in most, especially recent Wes Anderson movies. And mm. then one of the child actors, whose name I forget, uh, but he's this kid who's always walking around like, do you dare me? Do you dare me to do whatever? And uh, people are always like, no, we don't dare you to do this. Get down from whatever you're doing. Just stop. Whatever you're doing, just stop it. No one cares. And at a, at a certain point, he's like, do you, dare, do you dare me? And his dad looks at him and says, why do we always have to dare you to do something? Why don't you just do it? Why do you need to be dared? And he says this line that's like, I'm just afraid that if I don't have people dare me to do something, they're not going to pay attention to me and they're not going to know that I exist. And it's such a weirdly honest line coming from Wes Anderson, who is so wildly artificial in so many of his recent movies that like, I love those little peaks of something more sincere in this movie. And I think that like, I don't think that Wes Anderson will ever be a filmmaker who just makes, who, who makes movies that have just those sincere moments or just those sincere characters. And personally, I wouldn't want him to be because then he'd be a different filmmaker, which like mm. would be fine. I might like that filmmaker too, but it wouldn't be Wes Anderson. But I think that like, this is a movie that is more interested in being sincere and honest than a lot of Wes Anderson movies typically are. And it wrestles with that a lot because there's so, I found that so many times in this movie, he's right on the brink of saying something honest and then he'll do something wacky. Like there's a scene, um, there's a scene where everyone is supposed to be asleep and then it starts like cutting to random people in the crowd being like, you can't wake up if you never go to sleep. And it's a wacky, crazy, like almost weird nightmarish sequence. But it's like, 
up until right up until that point, it's working towards something honest. And then it's like rejecting all emotionality and in favor of something quirky, which I think is sort of Wes Anderson uh, wrestling with his internal desire to do just that all the time. So I found this movie like a really interesting examination of depression and avoiding your emotions. Anyway, I was talking a long time, but that's what I liked about Asteroid City. That makes sense. I respect your opinion, and I see. I see. I understand the appeal. I did not like. It. <laughs> like that's fair. Movie. I think this yeah. movie is also like, it's it's. I I initially did not agree with this, but I heard someone describe it as the least approachable Wes Anderson movie, and mm. I don't fully disagree. Because I think that part of the reason that I like this movie so much is that I already like Wes Anderson. Uh, so this movie, in my opinion, being a deconstruction of Wes Anderson's specific storytelling technique really works for me. But if this is the first Wes Anderson movie you're seeing, I don't know that... I mean, certainly you wouldn't get the same impression. And I don't know if it would work at all. So maybe yeah. it is... I think I think the French Dispatch is less approachable, but this is a, a close second, probably. Okay, fair enough. I don't really have anything else to say. So you want to move on? Do you want to Do you want to say something about a? I, I was gonna say a, a very approachable movie, but I don't know how approachable it is <laughs> by a very non-approachable person. <laughs> and an inevitable movie more than anything, because like. <laughs> This movie was supposed to come out two or three years ago, didn't for lots of reasons, and then somehow was never canceled until it eventually came out. Yeah, it's, uh, it's genuinely, I the movie behind the movie is going to be way more interesting than the movie itself, because this is, it has quite the behind the scenes. We're talking about The Flash, just to be clear. We're going to talk about The Flash. And... Uh, this this was also I mean this it's crazy that potentially two of the biggest bombs of all time are the Flash and Indiana Jones and they happen to come out within two weeks of each other. I actually I can't believe how much the Flash bombed too. I thought it was at least going to get like six hundred million or something. Looks like it's going to struggle to get three hundred million in the box office, which and is what insane. Was the budget? I think the budget was two hundred million. Right? Reported at two twenty right now. Um. But there's a lot of fudging, I think, because this movie's been in production for like like ten years, or no, like seven years, on and off. And uh, it seems like studios are underreporting budgets a lot too. Like we just learned, Doctor Strange: Multiverse of Madness did not cost 200 million; it cost 290 million. Which That's for the life of me, I, I can't figure out why. <laughs> I can't figure out why that movie cost 290 million, and I can't understand how the flash costs 200 million because it's probably one of the worst looking movies I've ever seen. The CGI in this is so baffling. And like it's the CGI in the flash is bad to the point where when it was explained, like I saw a tweet that explained it as Andy Muschietti said, like we're supposed to see things from his perspective and in his perspective, since the world moves so fast, everything always kind of looks swimmy and out of focus. And I'm like, okay, so one, this has to be, like, the CGI is so bad, it has to be a director, uh, like, a directing choice. And beyond that, 
it's a really bad directing choice if it is. Like it's it's I don't it's not it. a director choice. It's it's uh it, yeah. There's no way. I I think it's basically a him coping with the fact that he was not allowed to work on the CGI more. And it's really the only way he was able to keep his sanity and be in any way proud of the movie. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not, he, he's really trying. I'll give him props for that, I guess. I, I heard someone say, so like shortly after this movie came out, Andy Muschietti was direct, announced as the director of the next, um, in, uni- in DC Universe Batman movie. So separate from the Matt Reeves Batman. But he was dire- announced as the director of The Brave and the Bold. And someone asked, like, with The Flash this bad, how could you... Uh, what what qualities does, and- does Andy Muschietti bring as a director to give him the Batman movie? And someone said, frankly, he's a trooper. Like, The Flash is a movie that was in production hell for 10 years... And Andy Muschietti somehow saw it through to the finale. Like, he probably didn't have very much say in this movie, considering he was one of the last creatives brought into the movie, but like, in this entire 10-year process. And he somehow still, like, managed to fight off everything this movie had going against it and actually release it as a flop, as a hilariously yeah. bad flop. But, like, it still came out. So maybe Batman the Brave and the Bold is the one for him to his to the Flash's one for them. Hopefully, I don't know, we'll see, but like I hope so. <laughs> the the Flash was not one for him, for sure. I wouldn't have much faith in his I think the them announcing that one of their most important DCU movies is going to be directed by Andy Muschietti, the day we saw The Flash come out was a very, very bold choice by James Gunn. And if it pays off, I mean, congrats. But I don't think anyone thought this would be as bad as it as it turned out. And I, I really have no faith behind Andy Muschietti's directing skills because it part one was, I think, just an anomaly for him. Uh, and that was brought through production or pre-production a lot by Carrie Fukunaga who worked on the script. And I think mm-hmm. he's a really good director and writer. I and mean, I think we saw uh, what happened with it part two, with, which was purely Andy Muschietti. And I thought that was a horrible movie. So I think it, um, I mean, I know this is fully anecdotal and it's me just forgetting who worked on the movie a lot, but like, Every time we've ta- we've brought up Kerry Fukunaga, I've brought up It Chapter One as like a quintessential Kerry Fukunaga film, and he's not even involved in the final product, which I think speaks miles to like just how much his influence is still felt on that movie. Despite you know, I didn't even I frankly did not even know Andy Muschietti was a person until like I didn't know his name <laughs> until The Flash came out. And I've seen at least two of his movies. Yeah. Well, I, like, I, I think that's, it's unfortunate that's not to that. specifically I think, shade him. But like. I think if Muschietti made it part two just as good as part one, then I think I would be like, okay, Kerry Fukunaga might have had some input, but Andy Muschietti is obviously a very well-assembled director here. But it doesn't I, – I, there is no proof of that so far. So I can't really say um, – 
Like I can't really support that claim, unfortunately. So I think, yeah, the idea that the brave and the bold uh, being directed by him is a very scary <laughs> idea. And I don't know why <laughs> I wanted to, I guess, I guess you might be right that it was just like James Gunn maybe just felt so bad that he basically dragged, they probably had to drag Andy through that and he probably felt like shit the whole time. And um, they're like, oh, don't worry, we'll give you the Batman later or something. What what they really should do at DC is anyone that worked on the old universe, just gone. Like, don't even, like, don't even touch it. Really start your own thing. But it feels like James Gunn is kind of picking and choosing what elements he wants to bring into the u- new universe. Because, yeah, this is... There's some potential in this movie. They They adapted... Flashpoint, which uh, I haven't read it, but apparently it's a very good comic. And I can see the foundation for a really, really good story here. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of potential in the foundation of this story. It just got so messy and convoluted throughout that there really is no effect. Um, a quick quick spoil I, I just want to say spoiler quickly like the ending scene well this isn't really a spoiler but there's a scene with his mom at the end and it's basically the climax of the movie emotionally and it works very well surprisingly despite the fact that the movie's done such a terrible job of setting that scene up scene up and i just can't imagine how hard that scene would have hit if there was actually a good movie behind it you know mm-hmm so yeah, I think it's just unfortunate. Yeah, r- really quick, I guess, if you haven't seen The Flash or if you're not going to see The Flash, which also very valid, uh, the idea is The Flash runs so fast that he accidentally goes back in time, which makes him discover that he can go back in time. But not just by, like, seconds, like in the Zack Snyder Justice League, Uh but he can go back by like a little more than that. So he's like, well, how far back can I go? So he runs so fast that he goes back in time to when he's a kid and saves his mother from dying. But then because he did that, he ends up in an alternate universe where he doesn't have his powers, but uh, he has his powers because there's two of him now. And also Batman is different and there's no Superman and they have to save the world from the events of Man of Steel. Uh, and uh, they can't do that because you can't change your fate. So he has to run, he has to keep going back in time, which at that point might be a spoiler. So I won't say any more, but he discovers the ability to run really fast through time. Yeah. And they probably chose the, the worst way of visually representing that, <laughs> which is, he is surrounded by walls of extremely terrible CGI reenactments of things that happened in in the DC universe and other DC universes. And other there's DC cameos. Universe. Oh from, God! Oh God! There's cameos like the funniest thing. Well, not funny because it was actually kind of like really grim. Uh, one of the one one of the weirdest things to come out of this was a tweet I saw by one of the guys. I think he was the guy who played the Flash in the nineteen ninety two series, and then later played Jay Garrick in the uh, recent CW series. He was like, "Yeah, I don't have any recollection of being in that movie, but I've been told that I am." And like, he was just fully CGI'd into this movie 
with like minimal, if any, consent of being in yeah. it. And he's he's the one that's commented on it. Like there's other people in this movie that are cameos who shouldn't actually be there because they are either they either weren't consulted or are dead. So like Yeah, I don't know how the legality such of that weird works, choices. But... Yeah, the, this is definitely the Flash. It, I mean, the DC EU has been the pinnacle of what has Marvel done recently that made a lot of money. We're going to try to do our own version of that. Like we saw it with Batman v Superman and Civil War. We saw it with Justice League and Avengers. We saw it with the Suicide Squad and Guardians of the Galaxy. And now we're kind of seeing it with, I'd say, Spider-Man No Way Home and the flash which is they tried to make their own love letter to the dc universe or (laughs) they tried to make their own love letter to the flash but there's no really there's not really any other there's no history for nostalgia of the flash so they had to mine superman and batman's nostalgia and there really isn't not much nostalgia for any of those actors (laughs) either from what i can tell like i don't think i think that multiverses can definitely work in movies. Like I've seen last year alone, I saw multiverse movies that I liked varying amounts, but mostly like enjoyed. Um, But like the reason that multiverses are so popular in comics is because you have 50 years of history to draw on and people that have varying levels of reverence for that 50 years of history. And like, when we're talking about superhero multiverses in movies, Marvel only barely has enough cinematic history to make a multiverse kind of work. Mm -hmm. And like DC doesn't have that at all. When the very first flash movie that comes out is supposed to be a multiverse movie. Like, like you said, there's no history of love for the flash because this version of the flash has only been in two movies before this. And other versions of The Flash, there aren't that many in terms of like TV and movies. There's one 1992 movie that became a TV show. There's the CW TV show that is not referenced even a little bit in this movie. So, you know, the only thing you're doing is making, like in regards to the CW TV show, like CW TV show fans are just going to be mad at this movie because it doesn't have the right Flash in it. So it's like, there's no, there's nothing to draw on. Half of the movies that are even in this movie and that are referenced in this movie are imaginary. There's a scene that has only ever existed in a story by Kevin Smith, which is a cool scene, but like, it's not a scene that people have any, like, it's not a scene that people have any reverence for because they've never seen it. They may is have heard the, Kevin Smith talk about it. Is that the Nick Cage Superman scene? The Nick Cage yeah, Superman okay. scene is like a, a well-known story by Kevin Smith, which is... <sighs> that was... I'll, I'll be real. I would love to see that in a movie, but I haven't seen that in a movie. So seeing it yeah. here doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it, it did not work. Um, yeah, and then like other parts of the movie, just like Michael Keaton as Batman really... I surprisingly didn't really bring much life to the movie for me. I, I like Michael Keaton, but to be honest, it really felt like he didn't even know why he was there. <laughs> he was just, he was just like, okay, I'll be, nuts, 
I'll be Batman again and like do Batman stuff. I, I doubt he was actually Batman in the suit for that many seats because he was he was moving quite spry when he was in the suit. Um, so I, I I don't think he was in the movie himself actually that much, but like that that was bad. Uh, Supergirl I actually really liked when she was in it, and she's in the movie for like ten minutes. <laughs> she's she's not in the movie. Uh, General Zod completely ruined him like he 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 was a great villain in man of steel one of the only things that worked in man of steel and they basically ruined him in this movie where he's just a very generic villain so michael shannon is a is an absolute professional when it comes to like interviews so if you read his interviews he never like puts this movie on blast but it's also very clear that he was not that interested in being in this movie which I, is a I doubt he sad, was even, but also like it makes sense, right? It looked like he was there for like a day, maybe, in front of a green screen, and then they basically CGI'd his face onto like a CGI model of his character. Um, like, and that kind of ruined it. I mean, Zod is a very serious, dour villain, but in Man of Steel, he's like serious and dour in a menacing way. In the Flash, he's serious and dour in a bored way. Yeah, he's just the generic villain number 23 or something yeah there this is a this is a spoiler uh but i i think it was abs- i was actually laughing so hard when batman <laughs> batman in that scene was like his ship's going down because he's hit and he's like don't worry i'm not going alone <laughs> and then he crashes into he like commits suicide by crashing into the kryptonian ship which was literally revealed to be shielded earlier because he shot a missile at it and it was shielded. So he, like, dies and nothing happens. <laughs> and but it's, it's so like, funny because, like, the Flash immediately goes back in time, goes right <laughs> before that, and Batman's like, don't worry, I'm not, going out, I'm not going out alone. And the Flash, like, calls him up and he's like, hey, there's a shield. And he goes, roger that, and, like, swoops yeah. up. <laughs> it's like, what? I don't know, dude. That that was actually so. It was so funny, and I like. I never thought I would be watching a Flash movie, and then I have to see Michael Keane's Batman die twice, like extremely quickly too. Like they they revived him, and then he died two minutes later. It's the same thing with Supergirl, where he's like, "We can save them," and then and that was obviously like the point of the scene was that they were getting addicted to trying to save people as a very the very obvious point of the scene. It just. It, it became very comical how they they paced it and how they played it out because like, I don't so, know. I don't think very much of this movie is left over from the Lord and Miller script from way back when. Uh, I think that was entirely thrown out. But like the parts of this movie that feel like they could almost work, at least thematically, feel Lord and Miller-esque like they could make it work. Like the scene where Supergirl and Batman die over and over again because the Flash is getting addicted to trying to save them is like, that's a Lord and Miller joke and they can make that work. Yeah. But like, it, it doesn't work in this because it's Andy Muschietti. Like, I don't even think, like I said, I don't even think that Lord and Miller wrote that because if, like, that's not left over. Like, I think they threw that entire script out. Mm-hmm. But like, Andy Muschietti can't make that work or at least didn't. And Lord, but yeah. Lord Miller could. Yeah, I, I think there's if the movie was played more as a comedy, I think there's an element there where they could have, like, I just imagine a scene where 
the Flash is like, like, stop dying. I've been trying to save you like a hundred times. And Michael Keaton's like, why are you <laughs> just watch me die a hundred times or something? Like, I thought that, there's like an element there that's funny. But yeah, it was played for drama, did not work. And it was very depressing because I, I, I apparently the initial plan was Michael Keaton and Supergirl were going to be back in the final scene. And it turns out that they are in this new universe that the Flash created and then he's settled in or something. But with the new DC plans, that that's all scrapped, and essentially they they brought up George Clooney for no reason at the end of it to just make Which a joke. Was very funny. I always was, love seeing George Clooney Batman. I think it was funny just because it was just like this is what this is what the DC universe has come down to. <laughs> it's like it's so bad that the end of their last movie is going to be. George Clooney just saying, hey, Barry. And uh, that's like, that's that's the encapsulation of this entire 10-year experience from Man of Steel to here is is George Clooney. <laughs> like bringing back bat nipple George Clooney. And which, uh, honestly, that's the best way they could have done it. I think it's just kind of dark, like, though. Like, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, if you think about it, George Clooney's Batman Forever is why was at least for the longest time widely considered to be what just about killed superhero movies in the 90s and like he's back to kill the dceu <laughs> in the 2020s that's a good point actually yeah yeah i just i wish we saw because i actually really like one of the aspects only aspects i liked was the the relationship between barry and bruce and we saw a bit of bruce earlier in the movie i didn't really like it um and then I, I just thought it would have been nice to see, like, kind of one last, like, like it would have been nice to see Barry and Bruce hanging out in, like, their last scene. And then the DC Universe, I think, could have gone out on a slightly decent note, but um, I think they just they just made a joke out of it. And to be fair, this whole thing was a joke. Like, it's like 10 movies. They probably lost, like, a billion dollars <laughs> in the process. <laughs> um yeah, so uh, there's not really much else to say about this movie. It's it's not good. There there's there's no. hints of a good movie. I actually kind of like some of the Ezra Miller Ezra Miller scenes, surprisingly. But overall, yeah, there's there's really nothing here. Those are the three movies that we've bo- that we've both seen for uh, for for this episode. Is there anything else um, anything else that you wanted to talk about before before we go out? Any of the movies you've seen that I maybe didn't see? Is this where we're doing the... <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, that's, that's okay. what I was trying to get to. <laughs> I, was, I didn't want to ruin it. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I want to talk about Elemental quickly. Because um, oh, yeah. I saw Elemental last night, and I was trying not to watch it for a long time because I just thought it looked very generic. And to be fair, it was, but it was a surprisingly had a surprisingly good third act. And it's definitely better than the, the trailers make you think. It's played... In the trailers, make advertise it as just a straightforward rom-com between two cultures, but there's a little more to it than that. And there's a couple moments that hit um, towards the end. And I would definitely wouldn't say it's upper-tier Pixar, but it it was a decent watch. And I think it shows there's still a little heart in Pixar left. But yeah, I, I think the one thing that really stuck out to me was just the animation. The character models for this look terrible. I thought it was weird how, you know, Pixar is like the 
probably has the best tech and the most money in the industry. And that this was probably their worst looking movie like I've ever seen. Like it looked it looked like one of those like it was animated by one of those like third party animated animation studios that no one's ever heard of. Like it looked mm-hmm. really bad. And I don't think it's because they had didn't have the tech to do it. I just think it's just they messed up with the character designs. I think everyone having a nose for some reason, the noses just really stuck out to me. Like the fire people having noses made them look really ugly. And I don't know it, but yeah, like in the last 20 minutes or so, it really brings a lot of these boring plot threads together makes something very interesting out of it. And I really would have liked to see a movie that supported the third act better because the third act basically stood by itself. And I thought it was very, very well done. And I would like to see uh, more of that, but yeah, Pixar right now is really floundering and, uh, this was another big bomb of June. So there's like a lot of bombs happening and it's unfortunate for Elemental that it was kind of caught in there because I think there could have been something there, but yeah, that's all I can I really say. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I probably, I'm, I'm sure that like everyone and their mom has already said this, but I think it's like kind of a problem with Disney in general, like the umbrella of Disney, because, you know, the last couple of Marvel movies we've talked about, there's they're lacking it's not necessarily that there isn't anything good there it's just that the execution isn't there with the pixar Mm -hmm. movies it's like i mean i really loved turning red but turning red is like an anomaly out of the last however many pixar movies but like even lightyear there's heart there there actually is but like the execution is just like not that good and so i don't think there's any pro i think disney has good creatives that have lots of ideas hell even james mangold wanting to tell an indiana jones story in his head it's probably amazing but like (laughs) disney also you know they need to put out they need to put out two pixar movies a year they gotta put out their own movies every year they need marvel needs to do two or three every year indiana jones they gotta revive as a series so that we can have indiana jones six in two years there's got to be more star wars it's like there's so much i mean when there's that much quantity it's hard to focus as much on quality because like it's always like all these movies that are coming out under disney probably may not be perfect but probably would be better if they'd had like a little more time in in the writer's room or you know at the in like with the animators working on them, but like, there's no time. They got to come out right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think the machine kind of got too convoluted. I think, you know, recently like with COVID and then, you know, especially at Pixar, I think John Lasseter leaving, obviously he left for good reasons. I was reading about some of the things he was doing over at Pixar in terms of, you know, sexual harassment, and they were really bad. And I can't believe Pixar, you know, it was founded on such wholesome themes, was actually operating under such, like, strenuous circumstances. Um, but it's definitely a studio. I mean, well, Pixar and Walt Disney Animation, are, they're both studios that they feel very lost right now. And I think that's kind of from the fallout of, you know, losing losing their their big uh, creator. And I'm not saying that he should have stayed on or that he was necessary, but they obviously didn't 
that obviously had a big effect on them, like morally, I'd say. And they did not have a, a solid foundation prepared for having such a big role being left open, if that makes sense. And like, maybe, maybe not John Lasseter specifically, but I think that one thing that, you know, uh, one, one thing that definitely helps is when there's sometimes when there's a guy in charge that has like, that, that has a vision or some way to like keep everybody together. Cause like I said, mm-hmm. cause like, I don't think it has to be John Lasseter. I heard John Lasseter. Mm. I'm pretty sure John Lasseter directed Cars 2. So he wasn't the right person for the job anyway. But like, does Pixar have one person on top who's like keeping everything together? Could he be doing Mm -hmm. a better job? Is it Pete Docter? It's Pete Docter now. I, and I think he, I, it's possibly could have done a great job. I just think the problem is if Disney knew about all this and they were waiting, because these weren't like, it's like everyone knew about John Lasseter. You know, this wasn't like, right. this was kind of like a Kevin Spacey situation where it's not like no one knew and that they needed a whistleblower. It was more like everyone kind of knew, just no one said anything about it. And if Disney was smart, they would have noticed this behavior and put up a very good plan of kicking him out and making sure that he was replaced well. But because they waited till the last second, they basically kept him until they couldn't keep him I think that actually probably had a very big moral effect on Pixar because, mm. you know, it used to be, you know, it's supposed to be a place of of pushing the industry forward and progress. You mean, while they had a guy who was sexually harassing people for years and no one said anything and they only made him leave because he had to, like, mm-hmm. just financially, they couldn't do it. So it's like, I wouldn't want to work for a company that did that. And yeah. I feel like maybe a lot of people at Pixar feel the same way right now because the, their heart, the heart and the perfectionism definitely isn't there anymore. And it feels like it's, it might be because no one really cares as much anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, I guess that's the, uh, <laughs> I, I guess that's the, su- that's the summary of June. No one cares anymore. Yeah, <laughs> literally. No, I am going to end this on like a slightly more positive note, though. Uh, two days yeah. ago, I saw a movie called No Hard Feelings, which is very, very good. And uh, I would absolutely recommend it. Uh, Pierre, have you seen any of the trailers for it? Do you do you know basically what the movie is? Uh, no. All no right. Idea. So it's, a, it's an R-rated comedy starring Jennifer Lawrence. And it's about... Um, Jennifer Lawrence lives in a small, like, seaside New York town that's, like, a big vacation destination for uh, rich people. And so this rich couple comes through, and they have a son who's very shy and reserved, and they he need, they want him to break out of his shell before he goes to, uh, before he goes to, I think it's Stanford. He goes to a big New York university. Stanford might be, maybe it's not Stanford. I don't remember. Anyway, he's about to go to university, and they want to break him out of his shell because he's, like, very quiet and reserved and shy. So they hire Jennifer Lawrence uh, with the promise that she will get a car if she dates their son for a month. And uh, dates might be a euphemism. No one, like they're, they're very nonspecific specifically to like, you know, they, it, it needs to be organic, but also their son is a virgin and they don't want him to be a virgin anymore. So like, that's the conceit of the movie. And it's like, um, it's, it feels like a type of movie I've seen before 
um, but it's just executed really well. Like a movie about someone basically pretending to be someone else and like to, um, to, to date some person and then them forming like a genuine bond over the course of the movie. That's a movie I've seen many times before, but this one is done really well. And what I think especially stands out to it for me is Jennifer Lawrence's performance is actually like one of the better Jennifer Lawrence performances I've seen in one of, in one of her movies in this movie. Uh, She plays a person with uh, commitment issues and like we get a lot of depth to that. She brings a lot of depth to that role and like she's constantly doing, she, she brings like these tiny little touches. Like my favorite scene is such a minor thing. Uh, she, she and she and the guy have just gone to basically Chuck E. Cheese and they win a bunch of like overpriced ticket prizes and they come out and he's giving, he's showing her their haul. He gives her like uh, the, he gives her like a beer, uh, a hat that like can hold beer with straws so that she can, um, so that, you know, she, he's like, you can, now you can finally drink while you're on first base. And she's like, Oh, you get me. And then he says, close your eyes and like puts on one of those finger traps. And she immediately goes, what is this? What is this? I don't want any part of this. Take this off. How do you get it off? And like struggles with it for a minute. And then like it comes off and it's only like a minute throwaway <laughs> scene, but I'm like, Oh yeah, it's because she has commitment and attachment issues. I'm like, it's such a tiny thing that almost feels dumb when you say it, but, but like a lot of movies wouldn't work in that attention to detail. And I think that like Jennifer Lawrence brings a lot of heart to, to the role of a person with commitment issues in a stupid R-rated rom-com where she also fights off teenagers nude on a beach. Like there's a lot of layers to this movie. That's cool. I think it was really I, I, I think it's just nice to see pure about a comedy being in theaters. I, I feel like, I feel like the last one I heard about was bros, but also that movie bombed. I don't think this yeah. movie is going to do too much better, but we'll see. I just don't I know think- why it costs. I guess it costs a lot probably because Jennifer Lawrence is an expensive actor what's, to uh what's the budget on. because i had heard so i had thought that this movie was like a pretty good success even though it was uh, it says low it's key. 40 45 million and it made it's made 55 million so far um, okay so it's not like a rager but it's not an outright failure the way that the flash is uh yeah well the thing is with movie budgets is you usually got to inflate the budget for promotion uh, they don't uh, they don't put in advertising costs, and then you gotta True. you gotta cut the um, the gross in half usually because theaters take sixty to fifty percent or forty to fifty percent. So right, it's actually what's well, in the red right now, but but it's know. also Hollywood's still weird. relatively new. So that's true. You know, yeah, it it has it has potential here. If but you guys, I, this... I just oh sorry, go ahead. I just I just like to see more uh, comedies make be successful so we can see more comedies in theaters, basically. Yeah, because yeah. I definitely, like, I mean, I sort of feel like uh, we live a bit in franchise hell right now, and I don't like it. And I would like to see more, like, mid, more essentially mid-budget <clears throat> movies like this uh, come out and hopefully do well. I'd like to see more of them come out, but more of them won't come out if they don't come out and do, po- if they come out and do poorly. Yeah. So, like... 
you know, the last big one I remember, not even big, the last like mid budget comedy that I remember coming out like this was the house and long shot, which might've been Mm. in different years, but like, yeah, those were basically, those were mid budget, no stakes, romantic comedies that like were still pretty good. And they're sort of remnants of like 2006 when that kind of stuff would come out in theaters all the time. And it just kind of doesn't anymore because it has to compete with the flash and more importantly, spider verse, which is actually making all the money right now. Yeah. It's it's been a crazy month. um, No hard feelings though is still in theaters. And to my knowledge, isn't coming out on VOD, uh, anytime particularly soon it'll probably come out relatively soon but it's gonna stay in theaters for a little bit so you know if you take one thing away from this episode uh go watch no hard feelings it's really good yeah so um cool that catches us up on june so coming up next we're gonna start talking about july a lot of shit going on in july impossible and more bombs july's looking a, a lot better uh Critically, at least. <laughs> so we'll I hope see. so. So anyway, Pierre, what's our last word? Bomb. <laughs>